It is Friday. We have made it, and we have an awful lot to get to on the show this afternoon. One of the things is going to focus in on what we were able to do this morning. Chorus Radio London went down to Canadian Blood Services, and a whole bunch of us went through donating blood. Now, I have to thank Cheryl Miller, who you heard on the Craig Needle Show on the roundtable today, because all of this started with Cheryl Miller. Cheryl Miller was sitting in this very studio at King and Wellington, and we were talking on the radio. And you never quite know what's going to come up when you talk on the radio, right? That's the fun of it. And she got talking about donating blood, or blood types, I think it was. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm an O-negative. And her eyes widened, and she went, you're O-negative? Yeah. She said, do you donate blood? I said, that's... I've been meaning to, and she cut me off completely. And she said there is no way that you should be O negative and not be a blood donor. I said, yeah, but I've never done it. I don't like needles, and I, when blood comes out of me, it makes me feel queasy. I've had blood taken, and I, I tend to kind of black out sometimes. And she said, no, you have to do this. And so the process was started. And when Cheryl Miller says, you need to do this, you need to take a long look and say, yeah, okay, I need to do this. So today I did it. Donated blood for the very first time. And let me tell you, from somebody who sees the the darkness start to come in when blood is being taken and when you think about those things, um, it was the easiest thing I've ever done. They made it just that simple. And in a minute, we'll take you back in time to that. And not just that, but we're going to meet people who donate every week. We're going to meet someone who has donated over 1,100 times to the point he has these amazing scars in his arm. Picture where a needle would go into your arm, so kind of at the the fold in your elbow you know you bend your elbow enough babies don't have it yet but eventually you get that little line or the two lines depending on your your elbow and how it bends he has an actual hole there now there is skin but it just shows what he has done and the reason brian does this because he can that's it because he can So we'll meet him, and we'll go back in time a little bit. We're also going to talk about some new blood in baseball in this area. David Mendham is one of a couple of Canadians who are participating in what is the JUCO World Series, which is the Junior College World Series. And let's kind of look at it this way. The Memorial Cup is taking place right now in Halifax. And because we have a junior hockey team, the Memorial Cup becomes an event that you've heard of before, right? When I say Memorial Cup, you say, yeah, that's the London Knights sometimes win the Memorial Cup. Yes, they do. So the JUCO World Series would be like us going to Oklahoma or Texas or California or Florida or some real baseball hotbeds and saying, hey, JUCO World Series is on this weekend. And they would say, yeah, I know. It's it's massive. ESPN covers this. The guys are down there right now signing autographs. It's been it's been amazing because all of junior college baseball is down to 10 teams. Well, David Mendham is a Londoner, and he is playing there. Not just that, he is putting up some astounding numbers in baseball. You know how many baseball players have come out of this area? We've had quite a few, and some have even gone on to play in Major League Baseball. When you consider in Canada, in London, We have winter here. You can't really practice outside 12 months of the year. 
you just can't. You're not going to go out when it's minus 20 and say, hey, you want to go throw the ball around? Are you kidding? We have center field sports that Adam Stern, one of those players who has gone on to the major leagues, he runs, and so that gives a, a place to practice. We have other ways to work out, but it's pretty amazing to think of how many people have come out of this area and have had great success in baseball. David Mendham could be the latest. We'll talk about that. In about a half hour from now, here's what we want to get to. Everybody has wishes when they pass away. And we got into an interesting conversation last night on On Point with Alex Pearson. And you can hear that when there isn't Blue Jays baseball at night on 980 CFPL, as last night had no Blue Jays baseball, so you were able to hear On Point. And one of the things we were looking at was being able to harvest someone's organs because they want to go through assisted dying and when you should be able to do that. And that, that was an interesting conversation that maybe we can get into based on another story where you have a woman who passed away, but her dying wish was to be cremated with her dog. But the dog was not sick. The dog had not died. But they euthanized the dog, and the dog was buried with that woman. What do you think of that? Think about that for just a second, and we'll talk more about it. We'll talk about Push the Film... And this is a movie that looks at why housing prices may be rising. And it's not what you think. It does have to do with supply and demand, but this gets crazy really fast. That's in an hour from now. And we'll also talk about a letter written to the City of London and Chief Municipal Law Enforcement Officer Oris Katolik dealing with some of the FOCO stuff. You're going to hear a lot more about this next week. You'll get the background on it today. So a lot coming up. On London Live, but I do want to begin because we've been following this story this week with blood donation. And if you're like me and you're a chicken and you've never done this before, I can tell you I didn't pass out. You'll hear that in a minute. I can tell you that they made it so easy. And I have never felt better about eating cookies in my life. It's fantastic. And you do feel like you've made a difference. So, Please, let's go back to this morning at Canadian Blood Services at Warncliffe and Southdale in London. All right, I've made it in the door. This, this is a good step. I'm Mike. I'm here to give blood. Hi, Mike. Have you got your donor card with you? I don't have a donor card because I've, I've never donated before. You should see the shocked look, and, and I deserve it. You know why? I'm O negative blood. I oh, should be. I should be doing this regularly, but yes, I just. I haven't Step one today. been. So I don't have a donor card. Driver's license. I have a driver's license. Boy. No one's taken that away from me just yet. Uh, okay. Can I drive after I give blood? Of course. Can you I, can. I can drive myself away from here. Yep. I think that would be important. So I'm just going to get you a barcode so that you can get on to our tablets to answer our health questions. Oh, nice. Okay. okay. Thanks very so much. Just take me a moment. Okay, now I've been sent over to put a barcode under a red light to answer questions. Okay, so far so good. Now I've made it over to the waiting room. I have my bottle of water. And I've had some of it. You're supposed to hydrate. I have some salty snacks going in, so some Breton veggie bites. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a happy-looking waiting room, I have to say. Everybody's smiling. Everybody's, everybody's really nice. Um, I've made a new friend already. What's your name? Glenn. 
Glenn, I'm Mike. So now we're now we're officially friends. We're shaking hands. You're here not just donating blood. You're donating what else? I don't donate plasma. So donating plasma. How different is that than donating blood? Um, because you get your red cells back, you can donate plasma every six days. I come every week. Do you really? You come here every week to donate blood. Yeah. How come? Um, well, you can use the cliche. It's in you to give. Um, my wife actually works in transfusion medicine uh, at. LHSC. So I always tell them I have to keep her employed, so I need to donate. <laughs> I'm a newbie. Yep. I, uh, I can look down at my heart rate. It's 94 right now, and I'm sitting in a chair. Uh, I got a little anxiety going on. What do I need to know about this? Uh, just don't stress it. It's, it's good. You'll just sit there and like you're sitting in your easy chair at home. And it is in me to give, right? They're, they're not taking more than I need today, right? Nope. They know exactly how much to take from you. You'll be good. Glenn, thanks for doing what you do, and uh, thanks for the reassurance. Thank you for coming out. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm, I'm doing okay. Uh, I'm a newbie. I've, I've said that a couple of times now, so uh, tell me where I need to go. Well, you're going to be in here screening. Um, we make sure you're eligible to be able to donate blood today. Um, providing that you meet all our criteria, you'll be able to go out and give your unit to somebody that needs it. All right, that's what I want to do. Now, I'm going to be completely honest with you. When I answered all of the questions in the quick little iPad quiz, I have a history in my family. I'm going to take it back to genetics hundreds of years ago. I don't know. But we, we have fight, we have flight, and we have a third F. We have faint, where I have seen family members, boom, down. And I've been one of them. Even in having blood taken, kind of that black will start to come in. So I'm trying to keep that away, and I'm feeling okay right now. But I just wanted to let you know that's a thing. Is, is that a thing that we need to know about? It is a thing that we need to know about, but we watch you along the way. And and being a newbie, we explain everything, we talk about it, we let you know if at any time you feel unwell or feel like that black cloud's coming in, let us know. We look after you. Okay, now I'm walking into the blood donor and plasma donor area. Everybody looks... Very calm, very good. Hey, look, there's Kim Woodbridge. Kim, you're done? I'm done. Mike, I did this in like nine minutes and 18 seconds. Is that like a, a time I should try to match? Well, Mark is, you know, going to try and beat that. I don't know if he will, but we'll see. <laughs> so was this your first time doing this? This was my first time, Mike, and I was so excited. I tried to do this two years ago, but I had traveled to a place that was on the no travel list, so I had to wait, and I'm glad that I did it now because literally in the last two months, my dad has been really sick and in hospital, and he's had three blood transfusions, so I got to see firsthand where this blood goes and how important it actually is. Any tips? Uh, relax, don't think about it, you know, sit back and enjoy the ride. Okay, well, thank you for doing this. And you get cookies at the end. Okay, that, that's that's incentive right there. How, how long was it, nine minutes? Nine minutes and 18 seconds. Nine, 18, okay, we'll see what happens. Thanks, Kim. You're welcome. This chair, I'm sitting down in the chair. This is, this is pretty comfy. This is all right. Which arm am I going to be making use of here? The left. The left. That's good. I'm right-handed. Jay Baker is over there. Mark from Fresh Mornings. He's a, are you feeling good, Mark? He's giving the thumbs up. Jay, this is what? The 42nd time? 42nd time he's done this. Anybody over 100 today? 
gentleman on the end is over a thousand. Um, Wait a minute. Over a thousand? Over a thousand. I didn't even think that was possible. So would that be plasma donations? And that's incredible. Okay, it's all done. I didn't exactly beat Kim or Mark, or certainly not Jay Baker's Mark. A little over 10 minutes, 10, what was I? 10 minutes, 59 seconds. 10 minutes, 59 seconds. Thank you, Janet. But I'm here with Brian, and Brian, I'm going to turn the microphone over to you, because Brian is the guy who used to be at the other end of the room who has donated 1,000-plus times. So you're over 1,100. 1127. I'm going to give you this microphone then. You deserve to have this more than I do. Holy cow. He actually has scars from donate. That's amazing. That's, that's a battle scar right there. Okay. You talk to me about doing this. I started in high school because I could get out of high school. So you get out of class, donate some blood. And they wrote a note so I could get back into class. Okay, now a lot of people will say they donated back in high school, and then all of a sudden, life gets busy. Did you kind of stay steady right through? No, because I went to university in Toronto, and there was we didn't have time for that. So, But when I came back, and I was working here at uh, London Life, now Canada Life, um, a few of us started back doing this, and I've been doing it ever since. You must be coming weekly. Weekly, every Friday. Yeah, because I can. That's amazing. And that's why you do it? Oh, this is coming undone. I should probably let you know. Yeah, uh. we don't want any messes. <laughs> we'll just keep that There. See, look at the care that you get. Why do you do it as much as you do? Because I can. And it, it comes down to as simple as that? It, yes, I can do it. And somebody out there, people out there need it. So why are you giving it? You're number one. This is the first time. That's number one. And I'm embarrassed to say I'm 45 years old. And this is the first time. Didn't do it in high school. Didn't do it after university. But you know what? I'm all negative. Why am I not giving it? See, you should see Brian's eyes light up when I say that. So, so why haven't I been here? So I had to start somewhere. This is number one. That is today. Thank you to everybody at Canadian Blood Services You can find them at Warncliffe and Southdale. And if you are like me and you've been kind of saying, I don't know if I can do this, and you don't run into Cheryl Miller and happen to get into a conversation about the type of blood coursing through your veins, just go there. They'll take care of you. We'll take a break. Up next, we'll meet some new blood in the baseball world from this area. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Let's keep talking about blood. Let's talk blood in the baseball world, and new blood from this area. David Mendham is a catcher and a third baseman and is from this area, actually from Dorchester. He's a freshman at Connor State College in Oklahoma, and his team, the Connor State College Cowboys, has made it to the JUCO World Series. And this this is as big as it gets. They're down to 10 teams now, and David has hit 421 this year, is 91 hits, which ranks him fourth in the country in the United States. He has 17 doubles, a triple, 14 home runs, and 84 RBIs, which ranks him second in the country in the United States. And uh, we're lucky enough to have him right now on London Live. David, we ran down what you've been up to and what your team's been up to. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. What is it like? Appreciate it. 
well, it's well-deserved. I mean, we ran through the numbers a little bit before we got going, but what is it like to not just have had a great year personally, your team is now on the cusp of doing something pretty big. You've got, what, ESPN around, signing autographs, doing all kinds of stuff like that this weekend. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's awesome. I mean, it's a good experience. and um, We started off the season having like 300 and something junior college teams, and now there's only 10 left, so... <laughs> a really good experience and it's been a lot of fun take us back to the beginning of the year did you look around and say man we got a lot of good guys on this team we could do something special or or has this just been a process i mean it's been more of a process because um when i went down in the in the fall there there was about 50 something kids and they're all good i was looking around and i was just trying to you know get in the lineup crack the lineup but as the season went on you know I'm like, we, we got a really good shot at this. Like, we have a good team. So, I mean, we just kept playing and getting better every day, and here we are now. I love it how you talk about wanting to crack the lineup, and yet right now you lead your team with that 421 average. You're fourth in the country in hits. You're second in the country in RBIs. Is this kind of the way that most years play out for you, or has this been different in some way in terms of what you've been able to do with the bat? Um, I mean, I know I can hit, but it's been different because, uh, I mean, at the college level, everyone's a real good player. So, I mean, getting in the lineup was was a little bit like harder because everyone has a has a lot of ability here. So, um, I, I mean, I wasn't surprised, but you know, I had to, like still had to work really hard to get in the lineup and do what I had to do every day. Well, it has worked out amazing. We're talking with David Mendham, who was named to the 2019 National Junior College Athletic Association Division One All-Region Team and has had a star season for the Connor State Cowboys and is part of that new blood that we were talking about in the baseball world. Take us back to minor baseball. What is it about this area that can produce people like you? Um, I, I just think it's kids working hard and want to get better. Every single day is what it is. I mean, it's tough being a baseball player from Canada because of the weather. So, I mean, it's a lot of hard work and trying to get better every day. So, where did you play your minor ball? And take us through kind of the path that gets you now to college and now to the Junior College World Series. Well, a lot of it has to do with my dad. He coaches a team called Expos AAA, and, and I played for the Ontario Nationals. And he's always been my coach, and I've always hit with him every single day and trained with my dad every day. So he's a big part of it. When and at what age would he have started to really throw some heat at you? I mean, probably like 14. I really started to like baseball around 14, you know, take it more serious. And now kind of the sky is the limit. When you start talking to major league baseball teams, What's that like? Because that's something you've done. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a new thing to me, like in the past year or two. So, I mean, I've gotten gotten used to it now, but it's kind of, it's different for sure. It's, it's tough to know what to say. And yeah. Do you let yourself think that might be a, a possibility in the future, or do you kind of keep the focus on the here and now? Well, I just try and, like, 
I kind of think of those as being distractions. So I just try and focus on one game at a time and one event at a time, and it all work itself out. Hey, well, that has been a great approach. Best of luck. You are into the top 10 of teams at the Juco World Series. And if you search it, you can find it. You can stream it. If you happen to be over the border this weekend, ESPN is absolutely all over this. David, best of luck. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. David Mandum, part of the Junior College World Series this weekend. We'll take a break for news. Still to come, the woman who wanted to be cremated with her dog and was. Except the dog may not have been ready. We'll tell that story, and we'll also talk a little bit more about the Memorial Cup this weekend. Still to come, push the film and an outline of what may be factoring into the big rise in not just real estate but rental prices that we're seeing, not only in this area, although we haven't seen big rises in rental prices in this area necessarily, uh, we have seen big rises in cost of houses, but around the world. And we'll look at that because this film has gone into it and it may have raised an issue that you haven't heard about before. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Big hi to Ursula, who is listening to London Live right now. Ursula just called during news, and she she wanted to apologize, but she really didn't need to. Ursula, back when we were talking about donating blood and the fact that I hadn't, called me a chicken, and she now felt bad because I went and I gave blood for the first time today. And it was really easy, by the way. Ursula, you don't need to call me a chicken. I was. I was a chicken. Totally. Now I guess I can, hopefully I can strike at least a, a little bit of chickenness off my resume. But thank you. Thank you for encouraging me to do it, telling me it wasn't that bad because you were exactly right. It wasn't bad at all. It was one of the easiest things I've done. And actually kind of enjoyable. Not as enjoyable as this might be, though. Please welcome to London Live our good friend Marilyn. Marilyn, how are you on this Friday? <laughs> Oh, I'm fine, dear. I plan on, you know, when I go, I plan on being cremated. Okay. And I'm not taking my birds with me. (laughs) And that's a story we're going to get to in just a moment, because there is a woman who decided she wanted to be cremated, but she wanted to be cremated and wanted her dog to be cremated with her and buried with her, which sounds fine, except the dog didn't have much say in this, and they euthanized the dog. Oh, that's that's mean. Uh, I don't get that. Well, you know, uh, my birds will go to the grandkids or anyone in the building here who would like them. I would look after your birds if you can't find a home. Oh, but but here's my deal, though. My will. Okay, but here's my deal, Marilyn. (laughs) Just kidding, dear. If I go before you, you get my three-legged cat. Okay. Well, that's all right. I don't mind a three-legged cat. Yeah, it's a nice cat. And is it lovable? Oh, very much so. Very, very well behaved. Uses the litter box. Well, if you're serious, you can have everything. The cage. And the food and everything. I mean, these uh, birds are fed well. Okay, I will make sure and feed them. But Marilyn, we don't we don't need to be thinking about these things. You and I are going to be here for hundreds of years more. Oh well, I don't know about that, my dear. My knees, my back. Honest to God, I, are you going to run for arthritis? Because that's what I've got. I'm riddled with it. Well, then let's raise some more money for arthritis and and let's make a difference, Marilyn. Thank you so much for the call. Well, thank you. I just love you to pieces. I think you're just an angel. <laughs> 
And I think the same of you. You have a great weekend. You too, dear. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We will talk about that story. We'll give you the details next on exactly what this woman asked for. And then I want to ask the question, is it right? And then maybe even get into a bit of a conversation like the one we had last night with Alex Pearson, because we didn't get to explore everything to it. But the idea that if... You are dying legally, so you are choosing to be euthanized yourself, assisted dying, use whatever term you want. There is a discussion that has come up regarding organ donation that I think is important to at least consider. And you know how we're always asked to have that discussion about organ donation? Well, this adds a really different wrinkle into it, and there may be changes to legislation on the horizon, who knows? But there are some concerns over it as well. So we'll talk about a very, what you would call, odd story and then something that may one day affect you when London Live continues on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. They always say truth is stranger than fiction, right? There was a news director long ago in radio who would come away from more newscasts than you would want to believe and would walk back into the newsroom and he would walk over to chair and he'd sit down and he'd go, I can't make this stuff up. I can't believe this. And then he would go on and tell you what it was that he had been talking about. Well, here's the story. This goes to Richmond, Virginia. And right now it's created a lot of conversation in Richmond, Virginia. And it deals with a woman who had a Shih Tzu, and she had it in her will that she wanted to be cremated with her dog, that the dog would be cremated as well. Now, this would work out just fine if the woman and the dog were struck by lightning when they were out for a nice little walk. That didn't happen. She passed away, and... The veterinarian, the funeral home involved in this, talked with the estate's representative, uh, the manager of the Chesterfield Animal Services that looked after the euthanizing of the dog, said, we did suggest they could sign the dog over on numerous occasions because it's a dog. We could easily find a home or a rehome. But this dog ended up being euthanized so that it could be buried with this woman. And now you've got funeral homes, veterinarians are trying to say, hey, we're not all for this idea that pets should be buried with owners. How do you feel about that? 519-643-2222. You can email mike at 980cfpl.ca. I can't believe that this wasn't stopped, to tell you the truth. Come on. Give me a break. How selfish are you? It's the first thing that comes to mind here. How selfish are you that you're going to take the life away from another creature just so that you, after you are dead, you can believe what you want to about what happens after you die. I don't believe you hang out in the place that you are buried. I don't believe you're in the coffin just kind of kicking back with your dog's ashes. What are you doing? Why did that happen? How did someone not stop this? 519-643-2222. Harold, how do you feel about this? Oh, I think we've lost Harold. 519-643-2222. But it also goes to something else. This is one of those unbelievable things. 
but it goes to a different story entirely. And that story deals with assisted dying, which we know is legal now. And we know, I I don't know that it's becoming more and more common, but it's being done. Let's say it that way. So it's being done in Canada. And there's a, a real conversation that is popping up with regard to assisted dying and organ donation. Essentially, in order to harvest organs, you have to wait a certain period of time. It's not very long, but you have to wait a certain period of time after someone has been declared dead. So you have no brain activity, a doctor has declared an individual dead, and then, after that period of time, organs can be harvested. And there are times where we're talking 21 minutes could go by. There are examples of that. And so now you've got people who are willing to put assisted dying in their wills who are saying, yeah, uh, I also want to make sure that my organs are in great shape. I want to make sure that whoever is receiving my organ or organs happens to be getting kind of the ones that I've had in me that have been working out okay. That's what they want. So they are basically consenting to assisted dying and then saying, I want to be put into a state where my organs can be harvested before I actually die. So that the last thing they do remove is the heart. Now, this is not something that anybody necessarily feels because there's, I I believe they use barbiturates in this case in order to put the person into a state where you're not feeling the surgery. But they're doing it so that they make sure that what they're getting is organs in the best condition possible. And there was an example. I mentioned 21 minutes. There was someone who had a spinal injury, and they were still, even though the person could have been declared dead, there was no brain activity, nothing else was there, there there was still a very faint pulse, so a very faint heartbeat. And with that, they couldn't harvest the organs. And there was some question as to whether the organs were even usable after that. And now we look at the chance of legislation being brought in to make this legal. And a lot of people have some concerns over this. And you would say, well, yeah, but why would they have concerns? This shouldn't be that bad. If someone wants to do this, if they can lay it out, heck, if somebody can die and have their dog somehow cremated, euthanized and cremated and buried with them, why couldn't we have someone do this with organ donation in mind? Why couldn't that be a thing? Well, those on the other side will immediately say, yeah, but how do we trust that we're not seeing an industry pop up here? How do we trust that we're not seeing someone looking at at someone in a vulnerable position and trying to talk them into assisted dying with the hope of retrieving their organs. How do we keep that on the up and up? And I don't have an answer for that. I mean, I'm going to live by science in this. And if you can get somebody who can take a pen, and I don't know right now, I, I might be in this situation. I have not decided to use assisted dying, but I don't know. I'm not in a position right now to do that. Um, I, I don't feel the need to do it myself right now. So, But if you can take a pen and you can write down, these are my wishes, and you can do it of sound mind, 
What's the issue with that? How do you keep those who would turn this into an industry away? I don't think it's all that tough, to tell you the truth, because you would have to keep this to pretty specific cases. And as long as you had those specific cases and someone was able to say, yeah, I'm in for this. This is what I want. These are my last wishes. Why wouldn't it work? Your thoughts. 519-643-2222. Taking it away from being buried with your dog and having to euthanize the dog to make it happen, but turning this into, if you are willing to say yes to assisted dying, if you are willing to go through the procedure and you want to make sure that your organs are harvested before you technically die, do you see an issue with that? Is that something you would be willing to do? I think I'd be willing to do it, but first I'd have to choose the assisted dying part. 519-643-2222. Your thoughts, you can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet at Stubbs980 as well. We'll return with more in a moment. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We're told over and over that we need to have certain conversations, and some of them are not all that easy But once you get into them, you realize how important they are. Things like organ donation, things like, what are your wishes when you die? What do you want to have done? You can basically lay out anything. See Exhibit A, woman in Richmond, Virginia, who wanted to be buried with her shih tzu, so they euthanized the dog in order to make it happen. But the other thing that goes into this is something that is going to become more and more of a conversation now that we have assisted dying, now that it is legal in Canada. And that is organ donation and the harvesting of organs. Because you have an opportunity to harvest organs after somebody dies. And then that often means that they've been oxygen-deprived for a period of time. Because someone must be declared dead, and then there must be a period before the organs are harvested. We're not talking hours. We're talking minutes. But at the same time, those organs are oxygen-deprived. And the idea that some people now want to go through assisted dying but donate their organs before they are technically dead. And this is raising some eyebrows and raising some concerns. I don't see a real problem with it. One of the biggest concerns has been industry, but I did just get an email from Mark, and Mark says, Mike, be very careful. This is a slippery slope. You said it would be easy to keep industry people away. Don't be so sure. Big business gets what big business wants. This may not be the biggest of businesses, but if there is money to be made, there will be people looking to create a system by which they can make it. That's that's the argument. Mark, that spells it out very well. That's the exact argument that people have, that those who are in a vulnerable position would wind up talked into this, would wind up going through something that they didn't want. But overall, I mean, we need more doctors to weigh in on this. And we have had some, and one actually comes from Western University. Uh, maybe we can talk to him in the near future. But what they're looking at is is the science of all of this. And if you are going to be an organ donor, because that's the initial decision, you want to donate your organs and your tissues, as far as I'm concerned, I'm done with all of that stuff at that point. If somebody else can use it, please, here. You know, if if you can use my elbow, take it. I can't throw a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, so don't even expect that. You know, it's not a very talented elbow in any way, but it's yours if you need it. If I don't need it, go ahead. Now, you don't have to feel like that. But once you've had that organ donation conversation, 
isn't the next thing you would want to think about, and I don't think we've kind of had it presented to us before this discussion has come up, but wouldn't you want to say, okay, I'm going to donate my organs. I want to make sure that they're in great shape. If I'm going to do it, I don't want them sitting around. You know, it's, it's kind of like when, when you bring home a blizzard. You could go out this weekend. It's going to be fairly warm on Sunday, at least it looks like. And you could get yourself a blizzard, right? And you bring that blizzard home. And if you've eaten part of it and you haven't quite finished it, what do you do? I could put it in the fridge. Mm, turns into soup with stuff in it. Okay, well, I'll put it in the freezer. Mm, okay. It's not going to be what you think it is. It's not going to be as good as it once was. And that's one of the things that I don't think we even take the time to realize that your organs can be oxygen deprived. Are they usable? Yes. Do we have successful organ donation right now? Yes. Can we possibly say this organ could have been better? I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but I'm thinking if if there is a time period and we could actually harvest the healthiest of healthy organs, get them into those containers, and then get them to people who need them, that's doing the right thing, isn't it? Or am I completely off base here? I'm not trying to start a company. I'm not trying to harvest organs. But if I was donating mine, and I plan to donate mine, if I choose assisted dying one day, yeah, you bet. I want them to be in as good of shape as they can be. My heart's probably beat a couple billion times already in my life. It's not brand new, but it's, it's as good as it can be. That's what I would want. Isn't that what you would want? Email me if it's not. I'd love to know the reason why. Mike at 980cfpl.ca. Coming up after news, here's what we're going to do. We are going to take prices when it comes to houses or condos or even rent prices, and we're going to look at them on a global scale because we have seen prices skyrocket. And this doesn't just go to Mark Twain's buy real estate. They're not making any more of it. This this becomes a little bit different. And we've got a market that's very difficult for new home buyers to get into and may remain that way forever. It's been hard for a while, but it's getting harder. Well, there's a little something that may go into this that I don't know that enough people have considered. Push the film helps us to understand what that thing is. And we're going to be talking about Push the Film. Go ahead and Google it during news, and you'll see what we're talking about. Because it involves housing prices and rental prices and investors and kind of the soupy mix that they make, kind of like a blizzard that's been put in a fridge. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Just confirmed for Monday. Monday's the start of the Stanley Cup. Still have to call it final. There's no way this is a final. Somebody help me out. Is Dr. Hare from Western University handy? He was always one of the best grammarians. Man, I've probably gotten myself into trouble now. Is that the right word for it, Dr. Hare? He was always very good with the grammar and the English language. The Stanley Cup has seven games maximum, the final. 
But because it's seven games, shouldn't it be the finals? And the NBA has a best-of-seven series, same sort of thing. They actually call themselves the NBA Finals, but it's the Stanley Cup Final. I don't think that's right. I think the NHL really needs to revisit that. I, do, I think that's grammatically completely incorrect. It's just like people saying World Hockey Championships this weekend. No, 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 no. No, there's not the World Hockey Championships. It's the World Hockey Championship. There's only one. If you want to talk about... The French Open Tennis Championships, that is. There's two. There's men's. Actually, there's way more than two. There's men's, there's women's, there's singles, there's doubles, there's mixed doubles, there's juniors. That is a championships because there are a bunch of them. If it's just one, it's one. It's not the Stanley Cup final. Stanley Cup finals. I don't think they're going to change it, but there's my two cents on it. We are going to talk in just a moment about Push the Film. And it is a documentary. It's done by Frederick Gurton. And it looks at why we can't afford to live in our cities anymore. And it features Leilani Farha. And that's who we're going to speak with. We'll get to that in just a moment. But I mentioned, confirmed for Monday, since there is a Stanley Cup final going into game one on Monday, since it's the St. Louis Blues and the Boston Bruins, we thought we would try and find someone who was there. And I don't just mean in the building. Someone who was there when Bobby Orr scored that iconic goal. Because the last time the Blues and the Bruins met, you've seen this. You don't have to be a hockey fan for this. The goal in which Bobby Orr scores to win the Stanley Cup and then flies through the air with his arms outstretched and his stick raised... That was the goal that ended that series. So we wanted to try and find somebody who was there. Jim Lorenz won the Stanley Cup with the Boston Bruins on that very day back in 1970. He's going to join us on Monday. And we'll talk a little bit about that game. Jim Lorenz is also a guy, if you're a hockey fan enough to remember back into the mid-70s, the fog game between Buffalo and Philadelphia, Jim just had a habit of being in very iconic places. Um, very good hockey player, and he was in that game, played in that game for the Buffalo Sabres. So we'll have to ask him about that too. But Jim Lorenz is going to join us on London Live on Monday as we relive the time the Boston Bruins won the Stanley Cup. Bobby Orr soared through the air after knocking in a puck centered by Derek Sanderson. What was Bobby Orr even doing in that spot? Well, he just knew that's where the puck needed to go, and that would help them to win, and they did. So that is coming up. We are also going to talk with Joe Hoffer in about a half hour from now, lawyer from Cohen Hiley Law Firm, about the draft public nuisance bylaw amendment. This goes to FOCO. You'll recognize it that way. And Joe will help us to outline something that should become a pretty prominent topic next week. You'll get the details right now. So that's in about 30 minutes from now on London Live. If you are someone who's trying to buy a home, I feel for you. If you are, if you're someone who is renting, I also feel for you because of the cost of rent. Now, London is not one of the worst cities by any means when it comes to rent, but you can find places to rent, 17, 1800, 1900, 2100. The rents aren't what they used to be. And the cost of houses, well, it's been well documented just how much we have seen property values rise and the cost of houses rise. It's not just in London that this is taking place. This is around the world. 
And there is a new documentary out that details maybe a pretty prominent cause of this. Well, it's just it's supply and demand. People are just going to pay what they're willing to pay. Kind of. That may have something to do with it. But Push the Film looks at this a little bit differently. And you can go to pushthefilm.com and you can find out more about this. Leilani Farha is featured in this film, and we are lucky enough to have Leilani with us right now. She works for the United Nations and deals in housing, not just in Canada, but around the world. And Leilani pushed the film, has looked into a thing that maybe we haven't thought of. Can you take us through what that thing happens to be? Absolutely, Mike. Um, First of all, you're quite right. Everywhere around the world, there is this affordability problem where housing costs are skyrocketing and people's wages just can't keep a pace. The question is, why is this happening? And that's what the film Push investigates, and that's what my own work has been investigating. What I've discovered is that there are some big actors at play, namely private equity firms, that have uh, a huge amount of money at their disposal to invest and to make profit. And where are they investing? They're investing a lot of that money in residential real estate around the world. What they're doing is they're buying up bad debt, like foreclosed mortgages, at a cheap rate, and then turning those homes that have these you know bad mortgages attached to them into rental accommodations, renting them out at a pretty penny, and then making huge profits. They're also buying up affordable housing in the form of apartment buildings. Uh, We see this everywhere around the world. They're scanning the landscape, looking for places that they deem to be undervalued, where they think they can squeeze more profits. So they go in, they buy the property, they do some cosmetic upgrades, and then they rent that property out at a higher rate, which either forces people out, results in evictions and homelessness, but it brings in a new class of people who have more money. So this is really having a huge effect and hold on, on housing stock in cities around the world. When did you start looking around and saying, oh, look over there, and then, whoa, wait a minute, it's, it's happening over there. It's, whoa, it's yeah. happening all over. Take us back to that moment. Yeah. So there was a moment, actually, when I ran across a figure, and the figure was something like $217 trillion, and that figure represents the value, the global value of real estate around the world. And that number is mind-boggling. It's like two and a half times all of the world's GDPs taken together, right? So it's huge. And then I scratched that number a little bit and saw that residential real estate was 70% of that number, so $163 trillion. So I'm like, wait a second. Okay, people are making a lot of money off of real estate and, and housing. And yet where I go, I'm seeing homeless people living on pavements, in tents on streets, in shelters, in motels. What is, and you know, the growth of informal settlements or slums as they're called, you know, what is going on? How can this be? And so it was only once I saw that money figure that it really got me going and thinking, okay, I got to explore this. And then I did find every stone I turned over underneath was a private equity firm or an asset management firm using this business model and pushing people out of their homes and cities. We're talking with Leilani Farha, UN Special Rapporteur on the Right 
to housing. And we're talking about a movie that Leilani is featured in because of some of the travels around to a number of different places. We'll talk about those in just a moment. But looking at the way that big-time investors are using real estate. So we're not talking about people then saying, you know, I'd, I'd like to buy a house and, and fix it up and flip it. That That's not who we're talking about. Do we get into things like hedge fund managers and, and things that aren't even really human? Yeah, that's it. You're exactly right. My aim is not at the you know mom and pop who decide to buy a second unit their their kids may live there during university and then they sell it off at a, a pretty penny later. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about uh, hedge funds, private equity firms, vulture funds, pension funds, uh, actually, uh, where there is just this huge amount of capital uh, being put into residential real estate. And it's uh, exactly as you said, Mike, what's, what happens is we end up with these, in quotes, corporate, but like mega corporate financial, in quotes, landlords. And they are faceless and nameless. I mean, in fact, what they do is they put some of this housing on the stock exchange, right? So it's a shareholder in Vancouver who may own a property in, you know, Toronto or New York or who knows where, London, Mexico City. And that's part of... um what I'm, what I'm, you know, really trying to investigate here is what does it mean to have corporate landlords? What does it mean to have asset management firms or pension funds as your in quotes landlord? And what does it mean? Well, the, the reports aren't great, frankly. Uh, um, there is this sense um, that that tenants have spoken to me about of uh, really not counting. You know, it's no longer that you have a relationship with who owns your uh, property or your building. And uh, in, in the States, for example, where Blackstone is one of the biggest private equity firms in the world, they are the biggest landlord actually in the world and in the U.S., and uh, people tell me that they are now given a 1-800 number to call if there's a problem with their unit. Um, and, you know, it's faceless, nameless. There's no, there's no human connection. If you're going to be a couple of days late in your rent for, you know, a, a perfectly legitimate reason that a, a, a human landlord might take into consideration in this automated system, um, that's, you know, done through computers and, and algorithms. Uh, people are being threatened with eviction if they're one minute late with their rent. And so, you know, this is creating insecurity and instability for a lot of people. Um, and, and that's not healthy. The right to housing under international human rights law, one of the, the main characteristics of adequate housing is security, that you're, that you're not fearful you're going to be evicted uh, at a moment's notice. We're talking with Leilani Farha, UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing. We're talking about Push the Movie, which looks into this and is something that Leilani has seen firsthand. Now, you have traveled places and you've mentioned the word eviction. You've mentioned the word homelessness. When we think of those things, we think about people who are way behind on their rent. We think about people who are homeless because they do not have a job or something else has come up in their world you aren't finding that, are you? No, I mean that's really um, a, a, such a good point, Mike. It, all of, let, let's put it this way: the housing landscape and the homelessness landscape have completely changed in the last 
let's say, 10 years, really since the global financial crisis in 2008. What we're finding is um, that the people who are falling into homelessness are no longer um, people lacking social supports, people with psychosocial disabilities or some kind of addiction, and without social supports, they do find themselves sometimes homeless. What we're finding is family are landing themselves into homelessness. I was out in California uh, and had a conversation with a woman who had been working in a medical clinic, and it was still actually trying to work at a medical clinic. She had been making a decent income. She was living in an apartment she could more or less afford. Then the building was bought. There was no rent control in place. Her rent skyrocketed. She couldn't afford it. Eventually, after couch surfing, ended up in a tent camp where encampment, which is where I was speaking with her. You know, this this is the new face of homelessness and 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 um, evictions as well. It's not about oh, you know, someone just doesn't pay their rent or can't pay their rent one month. Rents are escalating by huge amounts, sometimes up to thirty percent almost overnight or in a three-month period. Of course, people's incomes and wages don't increase to the same extent. We know that. And so people are really being squeezed. So, yes, these terms um, have a very particular meaning in 2019. Do you know whether that woman was still working, still employed? She was trying to, but she told me that it was quite difficult and that she was fearful she was going to lose her job because, of course, she couldn't, she didn't have access to proper sanitation facilities. She was living in a tent encampment. Uh, And so, you know, she works in a medical clinic. She had to look, you know, decent for work. Uh, And she didn't have ways to wash her clothes easily, et cetera. So she was on a bit of a downward spiral, I would say, uh, and really absolutely related to her building having been purchased uh, by a corporation that raised the rent. We do have rent controls in some parts of the world. How come we don't see more rent control incorporated into these situations to prevent what's happening? Well, there's a lot of hostility toward rent control from, of course, developers and these big financial actors. And so, um, you know, it's viewed with some suspicion as, you know, antithetical to a healthy free market, et cetera. I actually think we need to take a big step back because I don't think rent control itself is, is the solution here. I think we need to take a big step back and ask ourselves as society, you know, what system have we set up here? What have we allowed? And, you know, you'll see government law and policy has in fact, enabled this kind of financialization of housing. There are really nice tax laws in place, for example, that, that make it um, beneficial to set up certain kind of financialized housing arrangements. We have to look at those sorts of things and say, okay, is this the society that we want where only the affluent will be able to live in cities, or do we want some other reality that's a little more sustainable and so that we can have diverse cities with different income mix, different racial mix, you know, et cetera? Um, I think most people want vibrant, diverse cities. And so if that's what we want as societies, then we have to go after that, right? And we have to make that happen. That means dismantling some laws and policies, and it means putting up new regulations and new laws and policies. But I think we're not quite there yet. We need to, you know, really understand this as a problem, recognize it as a problem, this financialization of housing. And from there, we can start having the more solution-oriented conversations. Leilani Farha joining us, UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing. One final thing, and that is this movie and the face that it has put on this issue. People will, will 
pass things around and and people will, because we're so globally connected, be able to say, hey, have you seen this? Do you know this? Check this out. And that kind of spreads like wildfire. This movie has done that. What are you experiencing because of that? Well, it, it is true. The film has really taken off to sold out audiences in many cities, you know, Barcelona, Toronto. Well, not Barcelona yet. I hope that's coming up this, this Friday and Saturday, but I'm hoping it's going to be sold out. Uh, Toronto, um, Copenhagen, uh, Berlin, and Munich. So there is a sense that there is momentum around this film and the message and the ideas in it. Um, I'm hoping that this does create some kind of a global um, recognition that financialization of housing is one of the it issues of our times, uh, you know, tantamount to to uh, climate change. We need a focus on this issue if we're going to address it. Um, so that's what I'm hoping for the film. Uh, I do hope that there is a sense of, you know, every, you know, people talking to each other and sharing it and going out and seeing it because it's an eye-opener. There's no doubt about it. Leilani, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for what you're doing and bringing it to everybody's attention. It's a total pleasure. Leilani Farha, featured in Push the Film. So if you go to pushthefilm.com, you can find out more about it. It's, it's a strange term, the financialization of housing. But you go back to when financial, whether it's, she talked about, uh, vulture funds, hedge funds, they all have funky names, but they were able to buy up things and get investors to buy in. And then that winds up creating a pretty scary mess where you've got somebody who buys an apartment building, fixes it up because now they've got all kinds of capital. And then they raise the rents in areas where they can or they wait for people to move out and then the rent becomes more for the next person moving in. It's it's a pretty scary state. And that's what Push is trying to get across, that this does exist. This is not, oh, well, you know, we found two instances, one here, one in Barcelona. No, they're finding it everywhere. And you've got now with the power and the money that some of these organizations or, or some of the, the hedge funds have or, or some of the, the rental companies now have, you look at the power that they have put together, they now have the ability to spend money on advertising to try and influence. So when you get proposition votes in the United States, for example, they can kind of weigh in and they can advertise against that so that it works into their best interest. Yuck. That's what that is. I encourage you to look for it. Push the film. Let's take a break. We'll let you know what's still ahead on London Live. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Okay, a report from Shai Davidi of Sportsnet. This kind of started yesterday, but if you're waiting to hear the Blue Jays and the San Diego Padres, we'll have that for you tonight starting at 7 o'clock. Kevin Biggio has been recalled. He is the son of Craig Biggio, who stands number two all-time in times hit by a pitch. That was He was the Ernie Pantuso, the real-life Ernie Pantuso of his era. Huey Jennings is the only guy to have been hit by a pitch more often than Kevin Biggio's dad. So he's going to be recalled, and according to ESPN Stats and Info, 
If Biggio and Vladimir Guerrero are in the lineup at the same time, it'll mark the first time the two sons of Hall of Famers have done that. In fact, it'll be the first time two sons of Hall of Famers will be Major League Baseball teammates. We're going to talk FOCO, and that is something that could come back into the news, very likely will, next week. We'll tell you why that is, and we are also going to find out about something you can take part in on Sunday. Lots still to come on London Live. News is next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Good afternoon. It is 2.30 on Jacqueline LaBelle. In downtown London, we have a mix of sun and cloud, and it is 16 degrees. Ontario Solicitor General was in St. Thomas this morning to announce funding for a mental health initiative, but wound up taking questions about London's Elgin Middlesex Detention Centre. Sylvia Jones helped take the wraps off $140,000 in funding for a mobile crisis intervention team in St. Thomas in Elgin County. Then, reporters asked her about the letter she was sent by the Chief Commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, Renu Mandani. The letter was a scathing review of the jail, calling it overcrowded, unsanitary, dangerous, and exhibiting conditions that are dehumanizing. Jones was asked if she thought EMDC should be torn down. We have over 100 uh, individuals in that institution who have been um, told to be there by the judiciary system. Uh, We don't have a waiting list in the province of Ontario. And frankly, uh, bluntly, uh, to suggest that we could tear down an institution uh, is not going to make our community any safer. Jones said she would never be proud of a facility where inmates are at risk, but said the government's committed to improving conditions at EMDC. The honeymoon for Ontario's progressive conservatives is in the rearview mirror, according to the latest Ipsos polling provided exclusively to Global News. Brianna Carnegie reports. Ontarians are generally split on the government's move towards a balanced budget, with just 52% still showing support. If voters had to choose specific ministries or programs they would cut funding for, it's arts and culture that tops the list, while health care came in last. The cuts could be influencing support for the Tories as the party is now outpaced by the Liberals in a close three-way tie with the NDP. They also have a significant lead within the GTA. If an election were held tomorrow, the Liberals would pull in 32% of the decided popular vote, a 2% lead over the PCs. Brianna Carnegie, Global News Radio. The Supreme Court of Canada has ruled an Ontario trucker should be retried for manslaughter in the 2011 death of a Métis woman who bled to death in the bathroom of his Edmonton motel room. Bradley Parton was acquitted of first-degree murder in the death of Cindy Gladue. He admitted hiring her for sex but claimed a severe injury to her vaginal wall that caused her death was an accident during rough but consensual activity. The justices ruled evidence about Gladue's sexual history was mishandled at the original trial. Barton was found not guilty by a jury that repeatedly heard Gladue referred to as a prostitute and a native. You're listening to 980 CFPL. We have a new Around the OHL podcast out, and if you can listen to it, it will ask as a, act as a, a bit of a preview. Memorial Cup taking place in Halifax tonight. Semi-final, the Guelph Storm. They are that good. Talked about this earlier this week. 
The Guelph Storm are that good. Yes, they came back against the London Knights after the Knights were up three games to none. They are that good. They're in the semifinal tonight against the Ruan Aranda Huskies. Winner will take on the Halifax Mooseheads. They are the host team and made it through mathematically to the final. It, it was kind of strange. And one of the things that Jake Jeffrey and I talk about this week on Around the OHL is that math. And another thing is the fact that you've got three teams who are champions and there is a chance that all three could go home not having won their last game. And it can be a blow. You win your league championship, that should be it. You should be ecstatic. And then you go to the Memorial Cup and you lose, and somehow somehow it doesn't feel right. And we were able to talk with Terry Doyle, who's covered the Memorial Cup for 20 years now, about the fact that, yeah, you win your league championship, but but it hurts you when you don't win the Memorial Cup. I've always looked at, and you know, I've done this tournament for two decades now, that the Memorial Cup is sort of the icing on the cake to a championship season, that you still enjoy the, the cake, the main course, and everything like that. It, you're the team that won four rounds of playoffs, that won 16 games through that long slog versus a round-robin slash semifinal final tournament that goes on as sort of the icing on the cake situation. And I still think, indeed, you know, I look back to a couple of years ago, the Erie Otters winning the OHL versus the Windsor Spitfires winning the Memorial Cup. I realize maybe Windsor might get more of the headlines. I still tip my cap to the Erie Otters and uh, in some ways still give them a little more street cred because of the fact they went through that long slog of winning the OHL. And I think the same thing. Yeah, I think and Mark Habscheid, the Prince Albert coach, made some great comments after the game of some of the things they overcame over the course of the season and even over the last two years with that group. But I, to me, I think by the next morning you should be able to say, hey, you know what, we're still a champion. There's a banner still be going up in the arena. Uh, come the fall, you'll still have championship rings. You have all of that, and that group still walks forever. The one thing that does happen definitely and happened this year's tournament, maybe you guys are already going to touch on it, I'm jumping ahead, is the math because the yeah. tie-breaking formulas and that, it's like I feel like I'm holding court with this spreadsheet that I have, and it's like, okay, what? how do we work this math? Okay, ask Terry. Never once do you hear at the Memorial Cup, there will be no math. There's usually always math, Jake. Well, that's the funny thing too, and yeah, I liked going into the the um, the game last night, and you sort of say, okay, so if this happens, then and there were so many possibilities where who won, and then how many goals were scored. It's pretty wild, and it really kind of old dates back to a decision was made um, in the storm game on the weekend that really could have factored into the uh, shakeup of the standings. Well, absolutely. George, George Burnett was asked. He was down by two goals. The storm were down by two late in the game. They had a power play, and he was asked. What about pulling the goalie? He said no in a two-goal differential. Didn't want to get to the point of possibly being down three with goals for and against coming into play in the tournament. And uh, the way that worked, that if if the Storm did give up that third goal to be down three, then almost any Halifax loss last night would still put them in one, two, three-goal loss. Now, the other way, if the Storm get one to make it 4-3 and only lose by one back on Sunday, then Halifax losing at all last night puts Guelph through. So it makes for some interesting math, and same thing. You give up a goal late in the game like Ruin or Ruin Miranda scored, and Halifax let up that goal late in the game and on Wednesday night there. Normally you'd pull your goalie and scramble to get the tying goal. No, Halifax was just like, no, we're good, thank you very much. And the only game any of us have ever seen where the home team that lost with a goal late still cheered and celebrated after the game. Kind of a unique situation. And I was with Halifax owner and the former NHLer Bobby Smith near the end of the game. And when he was 3-3, he's like, we don't want to score another goal here. Because if they lost 5-4, Guelph gets through. 
losing 4-3 was just fine with them, the way the map worked out. So, uh, yeah, it was very interesting. Kind of added, you know, the traditionalists may not like it. I thought it added a little more intrigue and uh, made things a little bit more fun and uh, playing out all the scenarios. That is Terry Doyle. He is a part of this week's edition of Around the OHL. It's a podcast you can find on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. We'll take a break. Up next, Joe Hoffer is going to join us from Cohen Highly Lawyers, and we're going to be talking about something that will likely become an even bigger topic of conversation next week, but we'll lay it out for you next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Remember when FOCO wasn't even a thing? Somebody said FOCO to you. What are you talking about? I have no idea what that is. Farmers Corporation. What are you talking about? No, FOCO is a thing. Fake homecoming. And the city of London is not alone in what it deals with. We just have the cooler name. However, it's not that cool when people are getting hurt. It's not that cool when things are getting damaged. It's not that hurt when, the, when emergency vehicles and police services are affected to the extent that they are. But in drafting a public nuisance bylaw amendment, you always have to look very carefully at things. And one has been drafted, and more conversation is going to come out about this. Joining us right now is Joe Hoffer, who is with Cohen Hiley, and he is someone who has written a letter to the Chief Municipal Law Enforcement Officer, Oris Katolik of the City of London, asking... And pointing out some things. So we wanted to clarify all of this so that we've got any groundwork for any conversation that comes up next week. Joe, thanks so much for being with us today on London Live. You're welcome. Good afternoon, Mike. Let's look at at maybe why this is something that, that you have come into contact with. What has taken place to bring you as someone who's involved? Well, as part of the public uh, review of bylaws, uh, we received a, an invitation from the city to speak to the original draft of the nuisance bylaw. And when I say we, I'm talking about the London Property Management Association. That association uh, represents over 600 uh, small and large landlords uh, throughout the London region. Uh, its goal is to basically educate landlords in best practices, but also to uh, advocate on behalf of landlord interests in the city of London. So in drafting an amendment to the public nuisance bylaw, what concerns does that organization have? Well, the bylaw, the original draft and the current draft that's going to CAPS next, the CAPS committee next week, uh, imposes on landlords uh, an obligation to control the behavior of tenants uh, including to control that behavior while a party is going on. And uh, it completely disregards the obligations and, and their contradictory obligations imposed by the Residential Tenancies Act, which prohibit a landlord from interfering in any way with a tenant other than after the fact. So, for example, uh, if a tenant engages in improper conduct that that is going to cause harm to the property or to put them at put themselves at risk the landlord has to serve a notice under the provisions of the residential tenancies act point out what the behavior is give the set tenant seven days to correct their behavior 
and so on. Well, that's not the kind of thing that a landlord uh, is able to do uh, when it comes to a nuisance party. Those those things arise spontaneously or by invitation to which the landlord is not privy. And uh, when those events occur, even first responders have difficulty uh, dealing with behaviors. But the the problem for landlords is they can't go on that property without first giving 24 hours written notice. And let's assume for a moment a landlord does decide to comply with the bylaw and try to order people off the property. Number one, they're in violation of the Residential Tenancies Act. Number two, um, the city's worried about the reaction or, or about the danger that their first responders are put in. Uh, how much authority do you think a landlord's going to carry with a bunch of people that are out of control at one of these parties? Uh, it's quite foreseeable that physical injury will come to any landlord who purports to go onto the property and start ordering these people off. Yeah, that's a tough situation. We're talking with Joe Hoffer from Cohen Highly Lawyers. So what can be done about this? What, what would you like to see done about this? Well, I mean, the real thrust of the bylaw was it was an effort by uh, bylaw enforcement to introduce um, some changes so that if there were problems which resulted in a cost to the city, then the city could claw back all those costs um, as a consequence of that conduct. So, for example, if fire has to come in, if, if um, police have to come in, then uh, the thinking was a bureaucrat would decide whether the landlord had done enough to, to prevent it, and if the landlord hadn't, then uh, a bill, the bill for the first responders uh, would be handed over to the landlord. Um, none of that is, first of all, lawful. Uh, secondly, um, it's not going to solve the problem of nuisance parties. I mean, I, I can see uh, a tenant saying, well, we don't have to worry about anything because we're not going to be punished. It's the landlord who's going to be punished, and what do we care? And that's a pretty common uh, sort of attitude when it comes to landlords. They're not everybody's favorite people. Um, in my view, uh, what needs to happen, and, and we offered a, a part of that solution, was landlords uh, would make sure that tenants and the tenants' guarantors, which are usually the parents, uh, are clearly aware of the liability that's going to flow to the tenants if the tenants engage in that behavior and if first responders are called. Um, we invited uh, council to, or, or the, the committee and bylaw enforcement to talk to us about that. They didn't. If you look at the amendment, it just imposes uh, lease provisions and guarantee provisions. So I think uh, a starting point would be for there to be communication between the city and London Property Management Association uh, to come up with at least the warning clauses uh, in leases and guarantee agreements that would um, highlight the risk to tenants, the financial risk to tenants, if they engage in those behaviors. Um, tenants are already aware of the risks of losing their tenancy under the Residential Tenancies Act, but as I said earlier, you can't pull the trigger on those remedies until after the fact, and that's not going to help prevent these kinds of parties. Uh, but that's about as far as landlords can go. Uh, at the uh, It's tenants, it's people the tenants invite onto the property, it's guarantors uh, who need to manage that behavior because landlords simply 
cannot and are in fact prohibited from doing so under the Residential Tenancies Act. Joe, we want to thank you for your time today, and we'll see what happens at the Community and Protective Services Committee next week. Have a great weekend. You too, Mike. Thanks. That is Joe Hoffer. And Joe has written a letter to the City of London on behalf of basically property owners or rental property owners in the City of London, looking at some of those complications that can arise based on the wording of the bylaw where this isn't, hey, you know what, this tenant is taking a hammer and breaking windows right now. This is different. This this is something that arises spontaneously. This is something that may not fit into the wording of the bylaw. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out as we continue to try to deal with this kind of stuff. It'll be coming in a few months. You know what's coming. You know it's coming in other places as well, in other university and college towns. Um, it's just, it's, it's something that happens. You can organize stuff pretty easily and... We're still trying to figure out how to deal with things, and this is one avenue that will be dealt with next week. Let's take a break. Up next, we'll tell you about something happening on Sunday for Dad. Not Father's Day yet, but for Dad. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Before we close out, let's find out a little bit more about an event happening this coming Sunday. And it is something that if you have a motorbike, hey, this this is for you. And it is also for Dad. It is called Ride for Dad. And joining us right now is John Patrick. John, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. John, last year you raised over $50,000 for prostate cancer research and in the fight against prostate cancer. Let us know what's happening. Well, um, as you know, Mike, uh, prostate cancer is one of those cancers that can be cured if you uh, it's detected early enough. So that's what our part of our mandate is to get the word out. But this Sunday, we're having the motorcycle ride for Dad. We leave from at three thirty from three thirty William Street. Uh, kickstands go up at ten o'clock, where we have a parade through the city and take go to our first uh, poker stop. And then we do a poker run through the country and end up at the Dorchester Fairgrounds for our barbecue and wrap-up. Fantastic. If someone wants to get involved, they obviously it's helpful to have a motorcycle, right? If you, yeah, but you don't have to have a motorcycle to get involved. We have what we call ride angels, and those are people who collect uh, pledges from their friends, and even though they don't ride. But if you want, what I think is the fun part is to get in a motorcycle and go for about a three-hour ride and hopefully the weather will cooperate and then have a nice uh, barbecue lunch if someone wanted more information what should they do uh check the website out motorcycleridefordad.ca and click on the london event and it'll tell you more about uh, our event here in the city john what got you involved in this (laughs) well to tell you the truth mike i kind of got suckered into it um back in 2004 i was a member of the london police association executive we met with uh, Gary Jans, who is the founder of the Ride for Dad, and he asked us to do a ride here. And I was the only one on our board who rode a motorcycle, so I was nominated. Well, you've done a fantastic job. Like we said, $50,000 last year. Ride for Dad this year. For anybody who wanted to come out to either the barbecue or get involved, lay the registration and the barbecue time on us again. Okay, registration starts at uh, 8 o'clock on Sunday morning, 
kickstands up at uh, 10 o'clock for the ride. And then um, we usually get out to Dorchester around uh, 1 o'clock-ish, and we'll start our barbecue then at the Dorchester Fairgrounds. Fantastic. And you're leaving from the London Police Association headquarters. John, all the best. And again, yeah, let's hope the weather holds up for you. Have a great weekend. You too, Mike. And thanks very much for allowing me to get the word out. That is John Patrick from Ride for Dad. Raised a whole lot of money last year looking to do the same thing this year for the fight against prostate cancer. Thank you to all of our guests. I want to mention one thing that Janet from Canadian Blood Services mentioned. They're going through a lot of water bottles right now at Canadian Blood Services because you've got to hydrate before you give blood. Something we did through Chorus Radio London today. If you could bring your own water bottle, they could fill that up. And she thought that would be a great thing to do. So I want to make mention of that. Thanks to Kelly Wong for all her help today. We've got news coming up next. London Live, brought to you as always by Courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South in London. Do enjoy the weekend. Keep your fingers crossed that the weather is good. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL.